Hello, I'm Rupert Soskin. And I'm Michael Bott. And this is the Standing With Stones Antiquarian Podcast. This podcast is only made possible by monthly donations from our listeners who have supported us through Patreon.com. You can become one of our patrons for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash standingwithstones. Welcome to the Standing With Stones monthly podcast number 16 for July 2019. And this month, we're staying at home. Well, kind of. Michael's just back from digging up the nest of Brodka. Well, I wish I was back from digging up the nest of Brodka, <laughs> but I think that's hyperbole. I was actually digging up the um, the Cairns Brock on South Ronaldsey, um, date-wise, which is about 2,000 years later on. Mm. Notwithstanding that, it's full of exciting information about uh, life on Orkney and, uh, indeed, uh, adventures in first steps in archaeology. I'm slightly green with envy, actually, because I, I couldn't go, and it's great to have first-hand news right here. Yes, I'm sure it will be. I hope it will be. <laughs> I'm just uh, worried about my memory, that's all. You can't do anything about that. Too late, isn't it? Anyway, before we get into all that, what is it that is pushing back our boundaries this month, Mr Soskin? Mm, well, this is a fabulous piece of news, well, particularly for <laughs> me, because I've always hankered after doing a piece of film about this. I think I know where you're going with this one. <laughs> <laughs> it's the fantastic discovery from the Isle of Lewis in the Outer Hebrides of Neolithic pottery in the waters of Loch Arnish, just by one of the Cranachs, which finally confirms that some of these artificial island dwellings date back thousands of years earlier than previously known. You see, way back in the 80s, on the Hebridean island of North Uist, archaeologists were excavating what they thought was an Iron Age Cranach, only to discover that they were actually looking at Neolithic remains. However, the issue remained that of the roughly 600 Cranachs known in Scotland, only a 100 or so of them have actually been dated, so there was no real certainty that they were an Iron Age phenomenon. So the Neolithic find on North Uist cast doubt on the conventional wisdom, even though dates still tended to be Iron Age. You've used the word Cranach three yeah. times already. yes. It may be worthwhile just briefly describing what we mean when we say Cranach. A Cranach, it's an artificial island. Um, basically, um, it's not necessarily in deep water, but uh, they piled up big stones. So yeah. We're talking about uh, stones that some of them weighed hundreds of kilos. And uh, they would make an island in the water, not far offshore, Oh, do you know what I had in my mind? I, I had uh, sort of stilted uh, dwellings, sort of out over the water. Well, they many On of stilts. them were stilted, yeah. But uh, but they basically they built um, an island upon which they placed the building. Oh, I see. That's different. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Got it. Uh, so uh, some of them would have been very close to the water some of yeah. them would have been you know some of the islands are, are larger than others but that's basically that's what a krennic is it's a um, it, it's an artificial island that's created so that the buildings the um which may or may not have been dwellings uh, can have been just offshore yeah okay uh but see, here's the thing yeah there's actually rather a lot of pottery to the extent that people are now wondering if it was a thing, tossing your pots in the water. Okay. Uh, so what this latest discovery might be revealing is that Cranachs may generally have originated in the Neolithic and they were in constant use for thousands of years, which could explain why they have tended to find Iron Age remains. And of course, there's no reason to suppose they can't be earlier anyway, when we know about the, you know, the wealth of prehistoric pile dwellings 
in the Swiss Alps and the Italian Alps, which are more along the lines of what I was thinking, perhaps, you know, which are more built on stilts. Yeah, and yeah, stuff. yeah. And yeah. That, but that's exactly the sort of uh, building that we're talking about. It's just the fact that they created these little islands upon which to place the buildings. So, get, get this straight. So, previously, although they've known about the Neolithic pottery, they've assumed that was from a time before the Kranichs was built. Yes. Were built. Uh, Yes, it's only in this one place previously that they had found definite Neolithic remains. Mm. Um, but it's that—it's uh, the eternal thing, you know. When if you're looking at uh, at levels and what you're finding is Iron Age, it, it was just a presumption, really, and not an unreasonable one, that all the Kranichs were an Iron Age way of being rather mm. than something that had been going on for a very long time. Mm. So, yeah, I'm, I'm particularly pleased about this news because now, now maybe we can put <laughs> some effort into getting that piece of film in the morning mists rowing out across the loch. Oh, yes, I'm looking forward to it myself now. <laughs> but, it's, uh, you know, what we're getting particularly excited about it. It may not mean so much quite to others out there, but when I saw the news and I thought, oh, when Rupert sees this news, and he already had, of course, he's going to be so thrilled. Because when we were filming Standing With Stones, got a, Rupert got a bit of a bee in his bonnet about uh, finding a, a, a Cranach, and we spent a whole day driving round loch or we did in the mists, um, <laughs> uh, unproductively, and uh, it was a very pleasant drive. And I remember we had a very nice steak in a hotel on one side. We of the did, l- didn't lock. we? Yeah. Yes, on on that day, but no filming was done. No, no filming was done for Standing with Stones no. at that time. Yeah, we are in danger of going all wistful. <laughs> but is is it just pottery that's been found, or is there something a bit more substantial going on there? Well, actually, the pottery was found back in 2012. Uh, oh, right. Yeah, so they began working on four different sites, right. analysing structural timbers and pot residues, uh, which have given dates of around 3,500 BC, which was very unexpected. Yeah, um, very. Uh, and another aspect of all of this is the implication that the Kranigs might not have been regular dwellings or houses the pottery all seems to have been deliberately placed in the water that kind of thing Uh, and you know quite possibly unbroken when they went in a lot Mm, of the mm. pottery is is hardly broken at all and looks as if it was complete when it went in so there does seem to be a ritual practice going on here what wait hold on (laughs) what did you actually say something might be ritual? <laughs> well, I, th- I think bearing in mind our general just... stance and my tendency towards donning a grouchy hat, uh, it is important for us to make the point when something genuinely appears to have been yeah. some form of ritual practice. Of course. Uh, let's be honest, genuine evidence of ritual practices are actually not very common at all. So very true. So all all this is based in the head. Uh, yes, but I'm hoping it's going to... All this work is based in the Hebrides, yeah. but I'm hoping it's going to shed new light on uh, Cranags all over Scotland, and we we could go diving up there. What? Oh, God, that's a bit... Locks are beautiful, but they do look very cold. <laughs> they are very cold. Yeah. Maybe not up my street, then. Well, Willie Bear dry suit. OK, I'll try anything <laughs> once. On to the news then. Uh, what have you got, Michael? Well, believe it or not, this is yet another discovery in Siberia. Seriously? <laughs> yeah, seriously. Pretty much every month for the last year we've been hearing about new discoveries in Siberia. We'll have to go there one day. <laughs> yeah. Makes you wonder if there's a whole new attitude to archaeology over there. This comes from the Novosibirsk Institute of Archaeology. Well done. And they have found two remarkable Bronze Age burials at the Ust-Tartus archaeological site, thought to belong to the Odinov culture. The two men seem to have been shaman of some description. One was wearing a costume which incorporated a collar made of around 50 bird beaks. Let's take a pause to visualise that for a moment. 
yeah? Not small bird beaks either. We're talking about herons or cranes. So this is going to look awesome. Well, has anybody done a reconstruction, I wonder? Anyway, so that must have looked pretty impressive. The second male was buried with what appeared to be uh, a pair of bronze spectacles. Heavens above. Uh, so the team have been excavating there for quite a while, and they've already found about 30 other burials. But Lilia Kobaleva from the Institute told the Siberian Times that nothing found so far as impressive as these two individuals. That's just amazing. Can you say any more about the spectacles? Well, it might be more accurate to call them eyewear for the moment. The eyepieces look more like hemispherical cups with, with holes in the centre. Um, it must have looked quite daunting when they were sort of bright, shiny, metal-y mm. stuff. But obviously it's quite unlikely that we'll ever know how they were used or perceived. Certainly the two burials are extremely rare... And it'll be fantastic to see what the artefacts look like when the team have had a chance to analyse and restore them as far as possible. Really is fantastic. I wonder what the rest of the Birdman's costume looked like. Another interesting feature of the Spectacle Man's burial is that the grave had more than one level. He was buried beneath two young children, Mm -hmm. separated by a wooden divider. Now, obviously, at this stage, it's impossible to say how much time separated the burials, and uh, maybe they were his children, it seemed likely to me. Yeah, family burials have always been a thing, haven't they? Mm. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to bring us closer to home with this next piece of news. Ooh, close to home? How close exactly? (laughs) Well, Dogland, to be precise. Well, to be fair, that's not precise at all, (laughs) Dogland was massive. But... (laughs) Um, Teams from the UK and Belgium have found two possible Mesolithic sites under the North Sea between Norfolk and the Netherlands. So we're talking about 10,000 or so years ago when Britain was still very much a part of mainland Europe. So the finds so far are pretty modest but hugely significant. Apparently they were planning this for ages, deciding where the most likely area would be for signs of human habitation and they located an ancient river system which they've called southern river and took some seabed samples which revealed a lot of peat and ancient woodland so perfect environment for people to live in and amongst the samples they found some worked flint oh my lord worked flint and ancient woodland at the bottom of the sea it's a pretty exciting thing to be said and also the the fact that you can you know you can detect old river courses i think if you actually get some maps and you know that which include the profiles of the seabed and you start to look with those kind of eyes you begin you can begin to see the remains of uh, old uh, uh, land features beneath the sea. But that's another subject, isn't it? But yes, but, uh, you know, and consequently, they are confident that they're close to a settlement. Uh, going out again in the autumn on a Dutch research vessel, it's time to see what else they can find. So this is a very excited watch this space, and yeah. we will bring you more information as soon as we hear anything. Right, so, you know what? What? I'm going to bring us... Even closer to home. Go on, how just much a further? little bit further west. Further west, how much further? Norfolk? No, a little further than that. Uh-huh. Oh, this is Cambridgeshire, near Peterborough. Okay. Um, and uh, actually, no, this is quite big. This is quite major. Oh, I know where you're going. Yes. Um, follow, follows on nicely from your Cranach's piece, actually. Mm. And this is the excavation of a Bronze Age pile dwelling settlement. Um, you know, so that's the stuff raised on stilts over water at um, Must Farm. Actually, quite a few may be familiar with what's been going on at Must mm. Farm because there was a, uh, a very good uh, television documentary about it uh, quite recently. Um, yeah, anyway, but Must Farm is uh, very grandly being called Britain's Pompeii or, or the Peterborough Pompeii because of its sudden destruction and the extraordinary state of preservation of the remains. Now, discovery itself isn't new. It dates back to 1999 when some of the posts were first spotted. What's new is the information, uh, once again, coming out of modern analytical techniques, 
It was known that the settlement burnt down and collapsed into the water where it was buried in silt, hence the state of preservation. But they have found that the catastrophic event happened within a year of the settlement being constructed. Yeah. So no human remains were found, so it looks like everybody escaped, but the snapshot of daily life is quite unprecedented. The team have uncovered 180 pieces of textiles, you know, even textiles being made on a loom. Whoa, you mean the fabric was still on the loom? Yeah, yeah. Amazing, isn't it? And, and food still in cooking pots. Um, if you really want to talk about daily life, they even found feces. <laughs> Wonderful mm. stuff. So how are they so sure that the settlement had been there so short a time? Well, actually, the detective work in this part of the excavation is, is really impressive. They could tell that the timber was fresh. They also found wood chippings from the construction, which implied that it hadn't had time to disperse or break down. The wood showed no signs of insect life, like boring beetles that uh, would normally take up residence fairly quickly, no evidence of fleas, which uh, always get into human habitations. And most telling of all... Very little accumulation of basic aspects of human day-to-day -day activity. All in all, one of the most amazing archaeological discoveries ever made in Britain. Needless to say, links uh, will be available, but they'll be in the show notes, which are only available on the Patreon page and only available to our very wonderful Patreon supporters. So if you want to see those, sign up now. <laughs> Um, but there really is a, a wealth of information uh, uh, there on that website uh, uh, if you want to find out more. Yeah. Marvellous. Well, moving on then. Indeed. Why don't we do that thing? <laughs> oh, let me see how my memory banks are doing. <laughs> mm. So this is interview Michael time. Interview Michael time. This is the section very proudly called Michael's Dirty Trowel. Um, I think in, in a nutshell, as you uh, a lot of you know, and if you don't know, I'm going to tell you, uh, Michael has spent a few days up on, uh, or in the Orkneys, uh, on an excavation at Cairns Broch. Uh, which is all very exciting stuff. So I'm going to quiz him about all the goings-on up there. And I think the most important question to uh, to ask, really, the most important question to ask first is, what is a broch? Oh, a broch. Um, well, back in the day, um, 2,000 years ago, it would have been a very prominent thing in the landscape. Uh, a broch is a basically um, a fairly squat tower, uh, sort of in, ranging in size at base between uh, you know, 25 metres maybe to uh, 15 metres across, uh, with varying thicknesses of, of walls uh, protecting an inner space of, say, 12 to uh, uh, 8 metres or something like that inside. It is not known for sure uh, whether they had a consistency of multiple floors, um, but the one that I was digging on, it is believed, had uh, two floors, uh, certainly one floor at least, and was probably about 10 metres high. OK, so, and what, what about um, date range? Are they... Are they particularly an Iron Age phenomenon? Or? Yes, they are particularly an Iron Age uh, phenomenon. And the date range, I think, is from about two, three, or 300 BC through to 100 AD. So it is quite that a narrow, sort of range, yes. narrow band, isn't it? Yeah. Um, fairly. It may be, the band may be larger than that, so um, don't um, uh, quote on me. I, I know the site director uses dates dating back to... Uh, 500 BC, but I think that would uh, not exactly be the height of uh, Brock construction. <laughs> <laughs> OK. Well, do we know what they were used for? Well, um, basically, yes, they were uh, inhabited. Um, they seem to... They, they certainly show signs of habitation, people living in them. Uh, they exhibit hearths. They exhibit food remains, often the remains of clothing, bone tools, certainly uh, uh, of people living lives within them. 
But at the same time, this is um, a heightened uh, form of living for what we, we can only assume were the upper echelons of uh, the, the culture back then, of society, whatever that looked like um, back then. I won't go into other aspects of it quite yet, but if I can just describe, I've made a general description of Brock's. Mm -hmm. The one in particular, the dimensions of the one that I was working on, the Cairns Brock on South Ronaldsea, the remarkable thing about it was the stunning thing when you look at it is that the walls of the tower were five metres thick. That is ridiculously thick. It is. You know, if you go through the entrance, the feeling is not of going through a door or a portal, but of going walking through a tunnel uh, to get to the interior space. Mm -hmm. And you take that into consideration, the fact that there were no windows when there were walls that thick, you'd be walking into a space that could only have been illuminated by artificial means. Mm -hmm. All the lamps one presumes, or, or people. You know, what, whatever. That's a good point, actually. I don't think I've um, ever sort of really thought through um, how what it was used for illumination, for a, for a permanent illumination in, uh, back in those times. Yes. I, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that amongst the small finds that have been dug up have been pebbles but, that have had uh, a side ground out so that you could burn um, oils in them. Right. Yeah, so... That's the sort of thing that's going on. Not only that, but within that five metre of wall, there was a stairs going up to the next level. Inside the wall? Inside the wall, Okay, yeah. Uh, and there were niches inside the, the wall uh, walls. Uh, not exactly sure what the niches were, were for. To have held lights, you would have <clears> thought, wouldn't you? You would have thought, but I think like, they seem to have had display purposes, <clears throat> would you believe? Oh, okay. Because I think that in uh, in the Cairns Brock, uh, there's one called the uh, the Red Chamber, or is it Red Chamber, and one called the, the the Yellow Chamber, because they were lined with red and yellow clays, respectively. So what was all that about? Wow. So there's still signs of that today. Uh, well, obviously they're able to <laughs> wow, discern that from that you know, the excavations yeah. that have been made. Yeah. All right, then we'll get, we're coming on to the excavations then. Yeah. Uh, go on, what, uh, what, what were you up to? What was I up to? The yeah. reason I was there is that I um, saw a, a post on Twitter, I think, from the uh, University of Highlands and Islands uh, advertising a three-day archaeology field course. And as Rupert and I, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> you know... Um, uh, talking regularly about things archaeological, it seemed a huge missing to me that either one, <laughs> neither one of us have ever got our hands dirty with a, a, a trowel and got down on our hands and knees and started digging in the dirt, actually. Well, well I'll, I'll clarify, I'll say in my own defence that yes. I have done it from a paleontological point of view. Paleontological? Paleontological. Yeah, paleontology. I've yeah. been digging up fossils, which is it's not quite Let's as rigorous say, as digging yeah. up the archaeological context. Nevertheless, yeah. I thought it was a good idea I clicked the button, I filled in the application form five months ago, and lo and behold, last week I found myself on South Wales. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, I'm particularly <coughs> intrigued by the, uh, the, the, the discipline, because it's such a meticulous thing, archaeological working context. Yeah. And so, you know, people see on television, they see archaeologists digging away and scraping away. Well... I can I qualify that? Yes. When people watch archaeology on television, they're usually thinking about time team. Yes, sadly. And that is not. I don't mean sadly in a negative way. I just mean no, it gives no. people a wrong impression. Do you know? Do you know what a time team is responsible for? A hell of a lot of uh, a massive increase in applications to university to study archaeology. Well, that's got what, to be a good thing. Well, it's, it is a good thing because they're all in demand. It seems now archaeology, you know, commercial or otherwise, is is uh, is creating quite a demand. However, yes, I was there to learn. And I think that is the one big takeaway. Uh, it is that the practice is meticulous. Um, beginning with really having to get your eye in because you are scraping down. You know, after you know, we've all seen on Time Team the big digger come in, scrapes off the layer of topsoil, uh, and then everybody gets to work. 
And it's at that stage that you really have to start being uh, delicate. Yeah, you scrape down a bit until you start seeing evidence of, of human activity, you know, anything that is incongruous to the natural, uh, what the natural topsoil. And then it starts getting interesting because then you start numbering the layers as you go down, you know, and we're talking about five centimetres at a time. So you're working in teams, you know, working on five centimetre layers at a time, sort of digging down fairly well at at the same time over clearly defined areas. About Um, how many people in a team then? I well, I don't, I don't know if it was, uh, the, the working condition was anomalous in our case because we were 10 people on the course and we were tending uh, to work uh, aside from the rest. But mm-hmm. my observation would say a team would normally consist of three to five people, mm-hmm. actually. But then it's a case, the, the first thing is getting your eye in so that when you scrape up a bit of stone... Is it natural stone? Is that a piece of pottery? Is that just burnt stone? Oh, mm-hmm. burnt stone, that's not natural. Mm-hmm. What's going on here? Um, is that a bit of flint? And you suddenly realise you have to learn very quickly to um, discern between what's natural and what may be the result of human activity. And mm. boy, that's not that easy. Many, many false negatives. Is that yeah. the right word? Yeah. I yeah, yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I, I, yeah. Uh, in the three days that I was digging, it was the area, to be fair, was quite bare of, of uh, small finds. But uh, several of my uh, colleagues uh, did have small finds from small bits of flint to uh, some um, pottery shards to... Uh, there was one actually... No, one did actually find a pot in situ, broken nevertheless, but it was in... In situ, I found zilch. That didn't mean I was not <laughs> digging up stuff and saying, "Oh, Mister Dan, who was our tutor, sort of look, looking after us. What's that?" He said, "It's stone." <laughs> <laughs> Crestfallen. He goes, oh, Dan, what's that? That's a bit. That's a bit. That looks like a bit of Neolithic pottery to me. No, burnt stone. <laughs> burnt stone. Burnt stone. Okay, yeah. and that is not a fine. That is not that's in that's an indicator of activity, but it's not a find in yeah, itself. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so yeah, that's the way that uh, that proceeded. Um, yeah, scraping back five centimeters at a time. However, on my second day, I was not making progress. My end, so it would have taken a while to get down to what was really interesting. So I was allowed to uh, heave a mattock instead of the mere, mere trowel. Go and tell and everybody down what a mattock is. Some people won't know. 10 centimetres. Well, it's like a pickaxe, but mm. one of the ends has got a blade, a sort of flat blade rather than a, a sharp point. Call me a nerd, but I've got a mattock at home. Oh, good. <laughs> well, I'll show you how to use it one day. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, but I did have the privilege of, you know, working down within the space that uh, uh, in in one of the ex, uh, extramural rooms to the uh, to the Brock and exposing for the first two, time in two thousand years one of the uh, uh, wall tops. So I was not a finds person. I was a I was a sort of um, walls. That, that's exciting. So when you person. say you exposed the top of a wall, yeah. Uh, so that was an uh, uh, an exterior wall. Yes. Was, uh, so uh, just describe the context of of that wall. Was it like a garden wall? What was well, that? Well, this is the thing I didn't we didn't mention about Brock's um, is that um, usually or commonly the exterior wall of the Brock would be used as uh, a starting point for the building of extramural rooms or buildings. Uh, within which uh, one presumes the um, other members of the community uh, would live. Uh, how far that extends out, it's not quite clear. But all round the brock, you've got little buildings uh, gathered around it using the outer wall of the brock as uh, as one one wall. So it's quite a complex quite a complex of um, buildings uh, outside of the brock that were to be excavated. 
are being excavated with the purpose of finding out, incidentally, whether they were contemporary with the Brock or whether they were later add-ons. There is a discrepancy of opinion among some archaeologists, mm -hmm. some of whom say that they were uh, made later and the Brocks were freestanding uh, buildings made for their own sake and others are saying, no, everything came together. Once the Brock was made, then the, um, the Brock was planned with the idea of the, the, the community uh, having their own buildings around the Brock in the first place. Interesting. Interesting. So what I, was, uh, what I did, what I was doing, I found myself uh, exposing uh, the tops of one of the walls of one of those buildings and confirming um, what looked like uh, yeah, a, a wall that had already exposed. They wanted to know if that wall extended further to the northeast, and uh, I confirmed that yes, it did. <laughs> that is exciting. Yeah. So, so how how long has this um, excavation been going on? It's been going on for it's uh, had thirteen seasons altogether. <laughs> yeah, Good grief! Absolutely. Good uh, grief! Yeah, yeah. And with an end in sight, or what's the what's the thought on that? Well, it's a really good point, actually. Uh, I think uh, Martin Carruthers, the site director, kind of makes the point that um, you, uh, when you set off on an archaeological dig, that you must have a specific aim in mind, otherwise you never stop. Hmm. Uh, and the, the point that I just mentioned is one of the uh, things that he needed uh, using this particular dig to establish, and that's whether the Brock came first and the uh, outer buildings were add-ons or whether it was all planned at the same time. So that's one of uh, his objectives. The other objective that uh, he's had all this time is to try to come away from um, what has been habitual with archaeologists that go, you know, go digging in a lump on the ground, is that they tend to focus totally on the lump in the ground. And the, you know, the, 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 that's a great thing about or Orkney, is that the archaeology is so good. But hitherto, um, the archaeology has tended to focus on that which is within the... Uh, the dig within the building, whatever you're finding underneath the ground there. Mm -hmm. Martin taking a slightly different approach, or a very different approach, really, and is using the um, the dig as a, a lens on the landscape and how the landscape around has been used to get a more general and overall view of how li lives were being live lived, not mm -hmm. what they possessed. Right, you get you, there's yeah, a yeah, huge, yeah. huge distinction, isn't it? It's, it's a massive distinction. Yeah. So, so, the, the, so the Brock is regarding the Brock as a trap for the uh, the the evidence of lives lived in the landscape. Mm. You know, a trap for the for the peat remains, for the uh, animal bone remains, for you know, the tools that used in the field. Um, that kind, that kind of thing. Mm. So the, the results should be, you know, from an Iron Age point of view, at least. Which I know we don't deal with that often, but uh, there are echoes. There are echoes. So, that, do we know uh, what sort of size of community was it? Any ideas? Or is that no, a, is that do, actually, no, I don't uh, actually, and that's uh, something I should put in a query about. Um, the natural size of communities for people is, you know, around about the 150 and 200 mm. uh, size. And also the, the other thing that gives that away is that there are 500 known brochs in the northeast of uh, Scotland. Yes. Uh, 200 on Orkney. Uh, 200, 200 on Orkney. Okay. More That's on Shetland. Yeah. So, you know, all these brochs are, are plastered up to this northeastern end. Um, you know, and, and some on the mainland. But a lot of the time, if you're standing, I mean, if you're standing by one brock, you'll be able to see another brock not too far away a lot of the time. So, so is, It is uh, known, for example, that at the Cairns brock, <clears throat> if you're standing outside the walls at the Cairns brock, you just look at, uh, over to the next sort of slope, the next hillside, there is a, there is a brock on the next hillside. There. So what what's the thinking around that? If, if the concentration of them is in the Shetlands, yeah. So and you can you can see another brock from your own brock. That that's almost that smacks of beacon 
material. It, 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 it's like they were waiting for invasions from over the sea so uh, they could I warn each other. What's I all don't over? think it's thought about that way uh, so much at all. I don't think they all had... They were tended to be by the sea, but I don't think they're all you know, right by the sea. They're not in ideal sort of beacon positions. I think this is much more about division of land. Interesting. Uh, much more about... Uh, um, <clears throat> defining where the chief uh, of uh, each tri- tribe, what was another word one would use, each Second. community, mm-hmm. yeah, um, uh, would be would be living. And I don't I, I don't know if this is a slight digression. While I'm thinking about it, um, uh, the Brock, if you look at it, and the five meter walls, and the fact that uh, to go through the you know that entrance into through that five meter of walling. You go back then. You would have had to. You could have had to have gone through two sets of wooden stout wooden doors, with the ability to bar these doors from the inside. So you don't do that unless you're suspecting there might be need to it does keep smack out. of defensive doesn't it, it does smell smack of uh, defensive so i suspect that um land was was it a premium usage of land was at a premium uh and uh, that you know communities would uh, interact with each other probably you wouldn't have to worry about your next door neighbor that would be a bit obvious but i i bet you uh, communities from further afield might not feel it amiss to uh, sneak <laughs> in the dark. Island cattle rustlers. Uh, uh, Iron Age cattle rus- rustling yeah. and stuff like that. That is highly speculative, though. Of course. But clearly there was a need. There seems to be a, a need to establish a stronghold of some sort. Why that is, not quite clear. So, OK, if the, if the Brocks themselves are... Iron Age. Yeah. Uh, what's the transitional aspect here? Do we know uh, was the land inhabited uh, for a long period before that and after that? Do we know? Is there any information around that? The way Martin Carruthers puts it is that he feels a sense of continuity in terms of the ability to construct stuff. He talks about uh, it seems that communities have broken apart and coalesced again and broken apart and coalesced again but there seems to be some sort of continuity of culture if only in one thing and that is the ability to build because Mm. the brox does not suddenly spring out of nothing the brox sound crude but they're not they're masterpieces of Mm. masonry Um, if you think about the Cairns brox in particular it's built on a 1 in 20 slope Mm-hmm. So they dug out hundreds of tons uh, to build a plateau, a shelf into the hillside, so that the brock would be and the the, the runs of the, the 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 stone building would be absolutely level. Uh, Martin right. says to within a couple of centimeters over this you know twenty two meter um, uh, spread. So, yeah, they knew how to build level, that's for sure. But you know what? The striking thing that uh, I felt going into that space, um, you know, when we're only talking about stuff that's coming up to your, you know, that has been leveled, so we're not talking about the full height of the uh, interior space, but because the walling is so finely corbelled, I was instantly reminded, even though it's circular and Maze Howe is not, I was re- reminded of uh, Maze Howe, you know, and that degree of skill of, of building. Right. So without actual, you know, it's one of those circumstantial evidence things. Mm-hmm. When you've got fine building in one place and then 2,000 years later you've still got fine building going on in, an, in another place, there seems to have been a continuity of tradition. Mm-hmm. And the ability, and of course, don't forget on Orkney they have a particular, uh, you know, the, the the stone. They knew how to quarry it, but that's the remarkable thing about us. we get these wonderful stone buildings on Orkney because they had the fabulous stone that just comes yeah. out of the ground in this, um, ready for building. Mm. So very true. Well, okay, so. Uh, 
But looking at the rest of Orkney, so, I mean, for example, comparison with the, the Ness of yeah. Brodga and, uh, and the amazing sites around there. So we know that there's a massive Neolithic um, occupation. And here we're talking about uh, Iron Age structures specifically. So, uh, so is there any notion of, of what that transition was? Clearly, there was a lot of activity during the Neolithic and Bronze Age. Uh, so do these appear to be built in places where the Neolithic ancestors didn't build, or is this uh, reuse of, uh, of, of location in different ways? Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the first answer to that is that um, on the geophysics scan, I think it was the later one, not the former one, uh, barely 50, 100 yards away from the, the brock, uh, underneath the green of the fields, is a Neolithic settlement. Oh, OK. So you're talking about 150 yards from Cairnsbrock, where yes. you were excavating. There is a Neolithic settlement. Yes, which has not been excavated. They put down some <coughs> test pits, so it is there. Mm-hmm. But who knows? Maybe you've got another scar of Bray lurking underneath the surface there. Oh, that would be exciting, but, uh, wouldn't it? F- also... Um, the so that that settlement is to the north, yeah. to the south east of the Brock. It's a Bronze Age settlement, again unexcavated, but it's there. About how far away? It's about fifty yards. Wow. Okay. I mean, no, fifty yards. Yeah, hundred, hundred and fifty. Yeah, same same region as the yeah, right, but, but really not far at all. Right. Okay, so it is. It's clearly a, so a that continuation. A yeah. Continuity. The other thing you've got to remember about the Ness of Brodga is, and we'll have to wait until you know the full uh, uh, report comes out and, and, and what they're gleaning from it. But those buildings, how many have they have uncovered now? They're not necessarily contemporary with each other. Mm-hmm. One has been built on top of the other. Some butt into the other one you know sometimes the previous one has been torn down and the next one been partially built over the next mm-hmm. um very very interesting and actually a little aspect of continuity of culture it seems that a common thing to find when you've got these brooches of the timeline when people have decided to finish with one aspect of a building or a, or a or a, or a village, uh, and build the next phase, you know, the next modernization, that they tend to be leaving animal remains in prominent places between one layer and the next. And that is something that continues right through. It's uh, quite remarkable and unusual, this leaving, leaving of sometimes uh, articulated uh, animal remains and little caches of um, uh, of remains. Sort of, so you've got, uh, at Cairns Brock, there's one cache on top of the uh, uh, Brock Wall when it was decommissioned, when it was pulled down from when from that time. Of I think uh, there's a there's a, a backbone from uh, a bone from the backbone of a whale, and in there's a cavity made in it, and some lamb bones have been put in there, and there was. Uh, a stone quern, I think, and a human jawbone or something, all in this little cache just to commemorate, it seems, the pulling down of the brach and the, uh, you know, awaiting the next phase. That is an odd mixture, yeah, isn't it? Wow. Okay, so, uh, so what is the range of artefacts that they've been finding then? What sort of clues do we have about the way they lived? The impression I get, and uh, it's not something I've taken away in detail, and I don't think there's a particular report on this from the uh, excavations yet, but it seems to be quite a mixed bag. Certainly cattle, sheep, but also wheat uh, and grain. And also evidence of weaving there, for sure, uh, with the little uh, bobbins and things made out of stone. That's particularly interesting. Do we know what they were weaving? I can't be specific. I no. presume wool. But you know, then again, I'd, I'd have to find that in the printed literature somewhere. Mm. I, that is not something that is um, uh, committed to memory. 
One artifact, this is a lovely one, particular artifacts they've been finding are glass beads. And the thing about these glass beads, and here we come with a little bit of uh, technology and, and science, that under the microscope they've been able to detect the wear marks that are particular to high-ish impact between one bead and another. Right. Didn't know what I mean? It's a particular kind of fracture that only occurs under those circumstances. Give me an example of what we're talking about. Well, do you remember clackers? I do remember they, clackers. Uh, which year around about were they? Well, it was 60s, late 60s. 60s. Yeah, yeah. So we're dating ourselves a, yes. a bit. Um, so they were basically, they were two very, I mean, they would be as probably as irritating as um, fidget spinners, f- fidget things, spinners. Yeah. Yes. How old are we? We're, um, we're 27. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, but, uh, yeah, fidget spinners. Whatever they are, yes. But th- these were clackers. There were plastic balls on the, two the plastic, were, yeah. two plastic balls on the end of a, end of a bit of cord. And the thing was, if you shook your hand up and down fast enough, they'd go clack 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 up and down, up and down, up and yes. down, bashing off each other and bouncing off each other. The thing with, with clackers is that they acquired from this smashing together a particular kind of fracture on on the surface Hmm. and it's this particular kind of fracture that they're detecting on the surface these these glass beads which which were you know threaded threaded together okay so they're not suggesting that they were used like clackers so how are they how are they getting these fractures well by uh fairly extreme physical exertion through dance Uh, you see what i mean okay it's really lovely isn't it Wow, now you see, that, another thing, as you said, modern technology, we would yeah. never have got that before. Yeah. Wow. Doesn't that bring things to life, though? It really does. So You can hear well, it almost, so, can't they, you? They found a lot of these? Yeah, enough. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Wow, that really is coming to life, isn't it? So, uh, so what, what's the score? Are you going up there again, or what's... Uh... Well, we're going up there again. We're going well, up there true. in we're September because we're leading a, <laughs> a tour, but we won't be going to uh, Cairns Brock because um, they'll be finished there. They'll have shut up shop, I'm afraid, because yeah. they've only got uh, another four weeks, uh, I think, this season to right. uh, to dig and get done what they want to get done. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'd love to go back. I mean, it's a long way up there, I have to say. I it did is, drive. It is a uh, gruelling drive. Yeah, really, yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, but I'm not complaining uh, at all. So, all so what, what's your what's your takeaway then from your first proper dig? My takeaway is huge respect to proper archaeologists. Although <laughs> I joked about, oh, I'm a proper arche- I'm a real archaeologist now. No, not. Um, I tell you, uh, the uh, detail of record taking mm. that is the fundamental thing. Every small bit, the tiniest bit of flint, because flint there is actually anomalous. It's uh, mm. you know, even if it was the tiniest, tiniest flake, that would be recorded, pinpointed to the millimeter in three D, in in the records. It would be bagged up. Sev- many numbers would be written on this. <laughs> it's extraordinary, on, isn't it? On on, yeah. on the bag, you know where it where exactly it was, who found it. Uh, any comments, uh, the layer it was found in, uh, the data, you know, all those kinds of, of things put in a bag. But also every single small find recorded at some point during the day would be logged electronically with the um, with the laser theodolite. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the exact position in space and time. Um, would be logged and uh, and recorded for few, and the, the thing is about archaeology that it is destructive and yeah. archaeologists know this they can't extract the information without destroying it so the idea is to preserve every last detail of the excavation so anybody coming along later can pretty much reconstruct it mm-hmm. uh, virtually as it were because they've got all the data of about every single aspect of every single find. Mm. And the important thing is 
not the individual find. Individual finds, unless they're extraordinary finds, are not important. What is important is the context. Yeah. That's the only way you can provide a story about what's going on. Uh, a, a single item on its own in the earth does not mean a thing. Mm. It's what it's next to that creates the meaning for it. Absolutely. When you get yeah, clusters yeah, of certain stuff happening mm. in certain spaces, whether it be burning, whether it be grinding, whether it be remains from, you know, around the hearth or eating, um, that's how you identify how people were living, mm. not through what they owned. It's fantastic stuff. And the well. I haven't mentioned two you things. Oh, okay. There are two things briefly to mention. One is the well, and the wells are quite common, I think, in Brocks, but uh, this one has been particularly well preserved, uh, and it is unusual. It is uh, underneath the surface of the floor, obviously, of the Brock, uh, the central uh, living area of the Brock, I should say. Um, it is um, carved out of the rock beneath the, you know, so it's it's quite a fun, quite a phenomenal piece of work to uh, hack well, this there, hole it's all, out of the rock. It's all bedrock up there, isn't it? It's there's all no, bedrock no soil, up there, there's, yeah. There's and such, I've been yeah. down in it. Uh, Martin, the site director, took me down uh, in it and we had a chat in the well. <laughs> Just him and me, which the way was you nice, do. the way you do. But in this well, one of the most remarkable finds uh, from this season anywhere, uh, certainly on, on Orkney was found, and that was a, uh, a wooden bowl. They found in the, um, the, the, the detritus in the bottom of this well, as they excavated it, was found to be anaerobic, so it was preserving stuff really, really well. So right. this older wood bowl, and it's not a small one, it's quite a substantial one, about a foot across, I think, this bowl had been broken not once, not twice, not three times, but four times and had been repaired with uh, tiny uh, copper alloy staples, copper alloy rivets. Beautiful. Hammered in, in, into the side to keep it together. So this was a precious item, Hell. and there it was at the bottom of the well. More besides, after the broch was decommissioned, just yeah. after the, it was decommissioned, and when I say decommissioned, I mean it was deliberately taken down, and the stones from the walls um, uh, deposited in the voids of the uh, the brock itself and in the surrounding buildings. Right. So it was, was levelled okay. with respect. <laughs> but after that happened, a souterrain, souterrain was built just curling round the sort of easterly corner of the entrance to the brock and then tunnelling in just underneath the entrance, just follows the entranceway. Interesting. It's, it's weird. It sort of comes round the outside of the wall and then takes a sharp 90-degree turn and travels underneath the entrance to the broch for a bit. Okay, that is interesting. Yeah. And it's a, it's a souterrain? Yeah. We're not going to say the F word, are we? No. We could do, <laughs> just to confuse matters and get other, certain listeners mm. to the podcast excited. But <laughs> yes, we could. A fugu by any other name. Yeah. <laughs> no, let's not. Let's not. Let's not. No, let's do that. No. But that's, that is interesting. And the whole decommissioning thing is fascinating as well, you know, um, because it's something that it's so culturally alien to us. These days we just bring in bulldozers and knock everything down. Mm. And in those days they actually reverentially dismantled stuff. And uh, Yes, it seems uh, that way. Yeah, it's very, very curious. Yeah. Uh, yes, and that's one of the cultural continuities that uh, seems to have uh, yeah. have gone on. I'm fascinated by the the nitty gritty of uh, of archaeology, the, the the rigor required. Yeah, uh, it's it's very painstaking. It's not something to be taken lightly, is it? You no, know, not as you at all. say, the fact that everything has to be logged in every conceivable aspect is time consuming and yeah. painstaking, to say the very and, least. And drawn, yes, and photographed. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, drawing to some people it seems like quite a subjective thing to do. And I was, mm. I found myself when invited to do the practice of archaeological drawing, which you, everybody has to do. Mm. I think, oh, I don't know if my artistic skills are quite up to that. But you know, but it's not up. It's not about that. Mm. <laughs> but even even so, it's. Uh, <laughs> 
I, mm. I think for, for anybody, there are aspects of it that are always going to challenge because it's, there's the log-keeping thing and then there's a, yes. there's a subjective thing because you, you're always in, being invited to you know, record your opinion of this piece. You know, you, you, okay. you, you've got to give some kind of description you know, of context, you know, from your point of view, the finder of this little bit of something or other. That's interesting yes. in itself. Yes, it is. Yeah. But it's all about being helpful. It's all about being as helpful as you possibly can to somebody coming after. Yes. So the more information you put in, the better. Yes, interesting. And whether, that, whether that be data in terms of numbers or whether it be a description, you know, mm. A personal description. Any middens? Any uh, any oh, signs of food? Oh, I haven't mentioned middens. Yes, I wouldn't pretend to have studied firsthand the results of uh, examination of what the midden contents may have been. But one fascinating thing that um, that came out, and it was Dan, our course leader, that uh, that, that said this, is that whatever the community was eating at the time, the inhabitants of the Brock and, and the village around, they weren't eating fish. Shut up. They don't seem to have been eating fish. How, but you're living on an island and fish is the most accessible food source. Why go... Well, he did... All right. So what he said at the same time was, where are the burials? Where human are the human remains, yes. Right. None to be found from this particular period. There uh, aren't barrows with remains in them. There aren't burials in the land. There are not in human remains. What, so inference being that they were all buried at sea? Or they were... Well, I suppose you... You have to kind of infer that, or that's one of the um, <clears throat> conclusions that you'd have to come to. It seems the logical one, but there seem to be no land-based um, interments of uh, human remains. And no signs of, of significant cremations or anything like that no, either? No, no. There are occasional, you know, single-bone remains, you know, seemed like offerings or something retained for a particular... Value or something like that, but in terms of what? Well, okay, so what? The implication being that the fishes ate your your family, so you didn't eat the fishes. It's well, that's a that's a circular thing you could take away from it. Isn't that it? is really really interesting. I must admit, I didn't expect that. No, it is a possibility, a distinct possibility. Another, wow. just before we finish, another little thing that came up. You asked about continuity. And it seems that, um, Martin Carruthers said, it seems that people in the Iron Age were as reverential to remains that they didn't understand that may have come from 2,000 years earlier, such as a stone axe or you know, <laughs> flint something or what happened. Do you know, mm -hmm. any of those things... As much as as much as they are a mystery to us, or a, occurred as special to us because they were old, were equally special to them, and they were afforded special places in uh, in their households. Yeah, that's lovely, and it makes total sense. Yeah, yeah. We haven't changed one jot in thousands of years, really. Mm -hmm. Wonderful stuff. Wonderful stuff. Well, I thank you, Mister B. It's been a pleasure. Uh, it's been a fascinating uh, discourse. In, indeed. Well, I, the, what will be interesting, um, also at the time, I did ask Martin Carruthers if he'd be uh, available to do an interview yeah. at some time in the future. So uh, a, a voice slightly more authoritative than mine may be able to uh, give you further illumination about the Cairns Brock. Not to mention, not to mention a voice more Scottish. A voice more Scottish, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, uh, thank you once again. Shall we move on? Shall then? we move on? Let's yeah. move on. Wonderful stuff. Well, blimey, I'm exhausted. <laughs> you, nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. 
Thank you, Mr. Soskin. <laughs> However, that brings us once again to question time. Yay. Has anybody, I've got to ask, has anybody actually asked anything? Well, yes, they have. Oh, They wow. actually have. Um, and this, this is a lovely question. This is from a friend and community member, Chris Brooks, uh, who sent me hey, off in a nicely different direction with this one. Chris asks, at what point did man stop nicking honey from bee colonies and start managing them through rudimentary hives? I know there are drawings going back thousands of years, but when do we start finding evidence of management and where is this found? That's an interesting question for a bunch of stonets. <laughs> so does Chris uh, keep um, bees himself, he does, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. Yeah, he's got a number of hives. Yes. Um, anyway, so I went off and I did a bit of research, and oh, I have to, <laughs> I have to thank Chris for this because I learned a lot. And actually, you know, it's not just honey. Man has been using beeswax for at least nine thousand years. What? Se- what? Seriously, nine thousand years? Yeah. And for all sorts of you stuff. You would have thought, what you really... No, not crazy. least of all, for making pottery waterproof. Um, and oh, in yeah. Slovenia, they even found a six-and-a-half-thousand-year-old tooth with a beeswax filling. Oh, you're kidding. <laughs> Fantastic, isn't oh. it? Yeah, anyway, get back to Chris's specific point. I can tell you that the earliest known hive-keeping comes from Egypt, where they used horizontal hives. Oh, right. Uh, There are various depictions of them stacked on top of each other. So whilst the importance of the honeybee has been known for millennia, if we're looking for what we can say with absolute certainty, honey is mentioned in Egyptian texts in 3100 BC, but without any reference to beekeeping. So maybe, maybe not. But, Chris, we do know that the earliest depictions of actual hive-keeping date from 2400 BC in Egypt. So you might also be interested to know that the oldest known beehive still in existence is a ceramic one found in uh, Tel Rehov, if that's the right pronunciation, in Israel. And that dates to 1000 BC. Now, how amazing is that? Um, uh, yeah, that's that's fantastic. So, two thousand four hundred BC in Egypt, you know, not that long after Stonehenge, um, in yeah, the Saracens yeah. um, went up. So, you know, just for a bit of context, wonderful stuff. So, there you go, Chris. For once, we could actually give a specific answer to anybody's question. Blimey, that makes a change. <laughs> anyway, we've done that. We have done that. We've done that. Was that was quick, right? Quick and concise. But you know what that means. Mm-hmm. It is. Oh, yes, it is. It is. Stonehead of the Month month. time. (laughs) (laughs) Go on, on, then. Who gets the gong this month? Stonehead for July 2019 is Simon Morgan. For his recent collection of posts, some super shots of Coromany and the Clava Cairns up here in Venice. Woohoo! Yay. Well done, Simon. Yeah, actually, there were some lovely photographs, weren't there? And uh, and it's something. There's a lot of the sites that just they're of a they're they're of a type, aren't we? You don't see that kind of structure anywhere else. So it's always yeah. nice when uh, uh, when somebody gives us something like that. Well done, Simon. Yeah, very thank nice you very shots. much indeed. Yes. Um, we'll be up at uh, Clava Cairns uh, again in September. We, we won't will in we? September. Are yes. we going to Coromany? Uh, no, we're not. Are we? We're not going to Coromany. No. Uh, okay. But uh, Clava Cairns can, uh, if anybody doesn't know the Clava Cairns, um, uh, have a look, actually. Have a look a bit deeper because they're a bit complicated and mysterious, are they not? Well, I was most taken, actually, by the uh, the remains in the ground that are almost invisible now. Those yes, radiating those lines. radial lines, yeah. 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 Mm. Okay, so that crikey. Yeah. So that's it. That that that's um that's wrapping up podcast number sixteen. Pretty much. Oh, except do we have anything whimsical? Ah. Nearly forgot. Ah, we do. We do. Hooray. We do. And it was nearly a grouchy hat moment, <laughs> but not quite. Oh God, we've escaped <laughs> by the skin of our teeth, have we? <laughs> All right. What is it? Well, actually, it's going back to your news item. 
um, of the Must Farm settlement destroyed by fire. All right. Um, what's, <laughs> what set you off about that then? Come on. <laughs> well, OK, you can't say anything is impossible. But this is something said by Mark Knight of Cambridge Archaeological Unit. Now, I'll say up front, all hail Mark Knight. He's a brilliant archaeologist and directed the excavations at Must Farm. He even won Current Archaeology's Archaeologist of the Year Award in 2017. So all respect is due. Indeed. (laughs) Until... (laughs) <laughs> well, he said... Look, we're all human, aren't we? He, yeah. Come on, you know, he so. said that it was possible that they burnt it down themselves in a grand gesture. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Do I need to pass you the hat? <laughs> well, let, let's just put it this way. It would be one thing to build something expressly to burn it down in some form of ritual offering to the gods. Maybe. But why food still in pots and clothes still being woven on the loom? Those are very fair points, Mr. Soskin. Well, you know the clincher? Go on. If they really were burning it down as a grand ritual gesture, I don't think they'd have found shit in it. No, yes, I think that's I think that's right. <laughs> Somehow. Oh Lord. Thank you so much for that piece of whimsy. It's Mr. A pleasure. Sol- yeah, we can rely on you. Month after month <laughs> after month. One aims to please. Uh we do aim to please good people, and if we have pleased you, please um do have a look at uh, becoming one of our Patreon fans, one of our Patreon supporters. Uh, you can have a look by going to patreon.com slash stangwithstones and having a look at the different levels of contribution that are available. Every single dollar, and you can subscribe for as little as a dollar a month, every single dollar makes a, a difference. It really uh, does. To us achieving our ambition of uh, doing this full time. Really, and giving you it? lots more of it. And Indeed. making sure that uh, you know we're delivering the very best um, megalithic and antiquarian Stuff that you can find on the internet and films and more podcasts and um, more interviews and that kind of thing. Yes. uh, Yep, you can find it in your heart to um, uh, subscribe to us, then you help to make all that possible. So, with that commercial over, it is time to say thank you for listening. Indeed. And, um, uh, yes, you'll be hearing from us again very, very very soon. Very soon, yes. (laughs) Thanks for listening, folks. (laughs) Bye-bye. See ya. Bye. Bye.